Hello and welcome. My name is Michael Kaplan, and I am your host for The Ephemeral Machine, a podcast about collecting cameras. Once again, we come to you from our studio on the beautiful campus of The Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. Occasionally, a member of our community focuses on a very specific area of camera collecting, and in doing so provides access to a veritable wealth of information that allows us to align with a different and fascinating aspect of this hobby. James Ollinger has endeavored to endow his already substantial collection of cameras and ephemera with a robust and carefully documented array of light meters that track historically and technologically. Through this comprehensive intersection of two invaluable tools of photography, the camera and the light meter, James has offered a unique perspective into the camera collection universe, one that needs to be explored at a deeper level and one that we will discuss in greater detail. When we return, James Ollinger, the genre collector. And we're back. You're listening to The Ephemeral Machine, a podcast about collecting cameras. I'd like to welcome James to The Ephemeral Machine, and thanks for joining me for another in our series of Silver Halide Sessions, Conversations with Collectors, Aficionados, Historians, and Archivists. Oh, thank you. Glad to be here. I don't know which one of those categories I fall into, but... Well, um, you know, you could fall into all of them, I suppose. Um, I guess it just depends on where your interests lie. But I think uh, as we chat over the next um, 45 minutes to an hour, I think we'll, um, we'll begin to sort of uncover where your interests uh, lie and um, how your, uh, your collection grew and um, what drove you to sort of become uh, invested in this um, uh, area of interest. Um, but what I like to kind of start with uh, when I when I meet with people and chat with them is to kind of find out where this all began. So um, can you sort of pinpoint um, a beginning to your interest in photography and, and, um, and then we can go from there? Yeah, that's fairly easy. I was, uh, I think I was eight years old. I was in the second grade. So I was seven or eight. Uh, my father used to like to take us out to thrift shops on the weekends. He worked all day. We had a stay-at-home mother. And he would take his kids out on the weekends. And we'd go through uh, to the thrift shops, the junk shops. We didn't have a whole lot of money. Uh, you know, he, he was starting a family and didn't have, and he was one of those people who could fix anything. And so you could go to the thrift shops, buy something that's broken or needs some work fix it and all of a sudden you've got something that for a, a small amount of money you know you save a lot of money and you you get you get stuff and you get the enjoyment and satisfaction of having fixed it which you know he has and I have the difference is he had a lot of more talent than I do about it but regarding uh, regarding that one weekend we were out in um, a place that's no longer with us it's called uh, the Vet Purple Heart Veterans in Garden Grove, California. And we found, I found a camera and this is a being recorded in Zoom. So Michael can see it. I can't, but I'm holding it up to the camera. I've got a Brownie Target 616 in uh, kind of a, a very simple Art Deco 
form. They had another Art Deco version that's a little bit fancier, and it cost me all of 25 cents. And my father was very uh, uh, encouraging. Uh, oh, yeah, I'll show you how to, you know, this is what it is, and this is how you use it. And so I, I had a quarter, and I, I bought it, took it home, and then I think I paid 75 cents for a roll of film, and I forgot what I paid for to have it uh, the process, but it kept getting more and more. Uh, the photographs were absolutely atrocious. They were horrible. I've never run another roll of film through it. That and the fact that it's 616, and even in 1972, I think, it was hard to find then. So, but the next week, at least in my memory, it was a week or two later, I found another one, which is a brownie six, which looks exactly like it, except it's a it's a six twenty, and I paid fifty cents for this one. And the, but this takes six twenty, and at that time, six twenty was very easy to find. And I think I ran a roll of film through it. It also took horrible pictures, but. Um, the week after that, or a couple weeks after that, I and I don't have it with me. I can't can't hold it up to the camera. Somewhere around here, I've got the uh, I've got a Kodak Instamatic, uh, one of the early Instamatics, and I paid sixty cents for that. So those are my third first three cameras. Well, three cameras makes a collection, and that one I could easily I could buy film for it anywhere. I could buy black and white. I could buy color. It was easier to process. I didn't have to talked my mother into taking me down to a, a fancy camera store downtown somewhere and all this it was great so and that got me interested in the photography and it got me interested in camera collecting and I started watching for cameras after that and I would pick up whatever I could afford and most of them were junk cameras most of them were brownies and targets and other Kodaks or Anscos, and I've got a I've got a raft of these things, and I've kept most of them. There were a few that I let go. I think for a little while I would I would get on a tear, and I had a, a TLR Kodak made a bunch of TLRs called the Duo Flexes, mm -hmm. and they were they're made out of beer cans. They're terrible, and I had them for I was trying to get all of them because I think I had a four and a three and a two, and I couldn't find the one, and I had these things collected and then finally, I didn't, you know, it's bad if you're like 11 or 12 years old and you realize this thing is, is just awful and got rid of them. But I kept most of the rest and I, I got rid of a lot of my, uh, my other Instamatics, but I kept, the, kept a couple. I got rid of uh, a lot of the Polaroid swingers and things that I'd collected. Mm -hmm. You know, they're really low end Polaroids, but I kept... A, a couple of the better ones and then I got interested in I got my father was again encouraging me my father had a a real camera he wasn't a photographer but he took pictures of his kids and he knew he had a, a manual camera and he knew exposure and he had a light meter and he knew how to work work it and he taught me how to read a light meter and how to use it and when I got a folding camera which actually had a lens you could that required focus and had to be set he showed me how to do that. So I started, I collected folding cameras. I got better cameras. They were still always cheap, but as my, as my budget grew and as I, and over time, I would pick up more and more things. And then I got into dark, I got into dark room. He acquired a dark room, 
a basic darkroom setup from one of his friends who had a who was getting rid of it. So we got a we got on larger and trays and a few things. We tried it in the bathroom, uh, had enough success that we knew that the bathroom was a bad idea, but we ended up building a dark room in the back of the corner of the garage. So I had a dark room and then that built up. And then as I got more into that, that kind of field things and getting better cameras and getting better cameras, well, okay, I'm going to upgrade and, and get into this and that. I had a neighbor who had, who was into photography as a hobbyist and he subscribed to modern photography magazine. So he, he ended up giving me a huge stack of modern photography magazines. I read them all. And then I would go to the, and I kept them. I now have almost the full run of modern photography magazine. And I've got books and I would go to the library and I would read books or I would buy books at, at swap meets or used bookshops or whatever. And all this kind of, it, it was a circular thing. So the camera collection helped with the photography and then the photography fueled my interest in cameras. So it was, it's always been this circular kind of thing. Right. And um, for the, for the, I should say for the benefit of the, of the listeners, um, I'll be posting, I'll be make sure I post um, reference photographs of the cameras that you're referring to um, in our chat today. Um, so it, it sounds like, um, and, and this was actually going to be the ne next thread um the collection and the the photographic process kind of worked off one another and sort of propelled everything forward in a in a specific trajectory how quickly did the collection sort of grow into something which was um more than you know a reasonable amount of cameras i don't even know what that number is but how quickly did it look oh let's say uh I can't really say I've always had more cameras than almost anybody I know, mm -hmm. even as a kid. So it's hard to, it's hard to say. It's always, it's just been a slow buildup because for the most part, I've never had a lot of money to buy a lot of cameras. So it's always been, uh, and for the most part, even when I was reading shutter, Shutterbug magazine back when it was this huge newspaper type thing that was thick and just tons and tons of ads. And I would read this thing like a novel and I would look at look at cameras that I wanted and all this junk. And occasionally I would order something, but almost everything I got came from thrift shops, swap meets, um, yard sales and things like that. And they're just targets of opportunity. There are occasions when I have bought a camera because I wanted a specific camera for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. I've got a Nikon F that I bought simply because on the website, on my website, my camera collection, I kept talking about the Nikon F. You can't talk about cameras, especially 35 millimeter SLRs, without talking about the Nikon F. And I thought it was it was it was embarrassing that I didn't have one. And so I went out of my way to buy one. And I finally found one for a price I was willing to pay. Mm -hmm. But um, for the most part, almost most of my cameras are just things that I, I I walk in somewhere and oh that's something I don't have that looks interesting or that's you know, that's, it's cheap. Well, why not? So where, where are we at in terms of numbers right now? Can you kind of pinpoint it, even a, a rough estimate? Well, not counting duplicates. And I know friends wonder how on earth I get duplicates and, and you, well, you get duplicates because people give you cameras mm -hmm. or I like buying lots. I like buying a box of cameras and, 
you get a box and you get two or three cameras and you get flashes and you get cords and light meters and filters and all this other junk. And it's just, I'm a, I'm a pig in a, a pig in a sty floating, you know, rooting through these things. And I love all that kind of thing. And so you end up with duplicates like that. So even though I've got one Argus C3, I've actually got, I found out the other day, I've got three Argus C3s. And I don't know how I got three Argus C3s. I only bought one. I've got, I found out um, Mamiya Secor, the 500 and the 1000 DTLs. Mm -hmm. And I know this because I was going, because one of your first guests, I think it was Anthony Rue, was Mm -hmm. talking about being robbed. Yeah. And so I decided, okay, I pulled up Excel and I began listing my cameras and writing down the serial numbers and where they are and, and what's wrong with them and this and that. So that if I'm robbed, I can give something to the police and I can give something to the insurance company. Yeah. And I found out I've got six Mamiya Secor, either 500 or 1000 details. They're essentially the same camera. There's a tiny difference between them. I, I, like I know, like I said, I think I got one. I think I bought one at a yard sale. And I was given one by a neighbor and I was given one by another friend. And I don't know how I got the others. They just, they just came. So um, I'm forgetting what the question, oh, the question was how many I had. (laughs) All right. I went, well, because I've got a website with my camera collection Mm and I've got, there are a few pages where I've doubled up and I've got two or three cameras listed on one page, but I've got without duplicates, I've got a prox, I've got a, like 210. Okay. And then with duplicates, you know, there's more. I don't know. I don't really want to know. I understand. And but I think it, light yeah, meters are the same way. Yeah, I want to I want to I definitely want to get to the light meters. That's an entirely different discussion. I mean, it's obviously related, but it branches off into a really interesting area um in terms of collecting. Um but the um, approach to collecting that I think is is really um, something that I want to uh, kind of want to look at is the organization of it, the way that you kind of approach the collection as an entity and the way that it evolves. And part of that is that you um, you know you you created this environment through which people can see the cameras that you own and you reference them to other cameras and you talk a little bit about them. So, Essentially, not only do we, you know, know you as a camera collector, but we also know your collection very well. And, and I think that's really interesting. A lot of times, you know, we, we see and hear people talking about their collections, but we really don't have the scope of it. Um, but here we have something that's kind of tangible. And what, what exactly goes into that? I mean, it, how much time is spent sort of coordinating with the website and making sure that it's up to date and, you know, finding information that might make it expand on it, make it more relevant or interesting? Uh, it's really haphazard. Mm-hmm. It's, it's extremely, ha- and a year, maybe not a year, but a long time will go by and I won't pay attention to anything. And then something happens uh, and you never know. Uh, once, sometimes I just get a, I get a hair going and for, I had, I like Canon cameras. I my first serious camera was a Canon AE one, which my parents gave me when I was uh, 15. And because I was taking a class and uh, my dad's camera was quite antiquated and I, I didn't get laughed out of the class, but I was handed another, a more modern camera an SLR 
and I told this to the parents and they decide, okay, for Christmas, you'll get a, you'll get a modern camera. And that, so I was interested in Canons and then I, I wanted to, uh, Canon made an A series. So, well, I wanted all of the A series. And so sometimes I will get into the thing, well, okay, I want the A series and I want this or that, or I'll try and plug a hole in my collection that I know I have. I do a lot of that kind of thing. But the other thing is that I'm just out at, uh, I was at a thrift shop a couple of weeks ago and they had a, they never have cameras. They had a Minolta camera. Uh, it was a Maxim 5000i, which is not a particularly collectible or a great camera, but I think they had a mark for $10. Well, for $10, I'll buy almost anything. Mm-hmm. And, and it looked at, it was in good shape. Well, I'll buy this. I can photograph it. I'll write it. I'll research it and write it up and put it on the website. And so, brought it home and did just that. And then I found something very interesting about it. And I got, went down the rabbit hole with that. And so that paid off big. And it's one of those things where some, and then I've got other interests. I've got, I'm into old uh, antique radios, pre-World War II radios. So I've got that website with that collection and I spend a fair amount of time with that. And it depends on whether I'm working on that or messing with that or not. And then that'll sit dormant while I'm dealing with other mm-hmm. things. And so it, it comes back and forth. And recently I just bought a couple of new light meters and I haven't bought a light meter in, in a year at least. And now I've got two. And so I just put those up on my website and it's the same. It's just, you never know. It's, it just depends on my mood and it depends on, on just circumstance and serendipity. I understand. What is the, um, can you kind of pinpoint, is there a specific area of interest in terms of camera collecting that you find to be the most um, interesting, uh, a specific um, uh, region of camera, you know, the country or genre of camera, TLR, 35 millimeter rangefinder, something like that? Or is it just sort of all encompassing? No, it's mostly I try to I go for better cameras. I don't care for I never cared for the toy camera stuff. I've got a lot of old brownies and, and that kind of thing because that's all I could afford. And I was a kid and I, I don't want to say I didn't know better, but it was, you know, it was all new and interesting then. For the most part, I'm, I stay away from that now. So I buy the better things. I can't afford Leicas and, and Alpas and, and the high-end stuff. And I've got a Roloflex and I've got a Roloflex TLR and I keep it in a safe and I bring it out once in a while and I'm like, Cameron's father with a Ferrari on Ferris Bueller's day off that I just sit there and I look at it and admire it. And I wipe it with a diaper and, and put it back and I don't touch it. And so I've got a roll of film. I, sh- I keep saying, I'm going to take it out. And then I can't, it's so beautiful. I can't, can't imagine bringing myself to actually use the thing because I'm afraid something's going to happen to it. But well, so for the most part, I'm in that middle ground. I've got, mm-hmm. um, I like Canon, so and I've got a ton of Canon, so it's easy to perpetuate that. I was doing uh, Fotlanders for a while because one of my very favorite fo- cameras is a Fotlander B, Vito B, which for anybody who's listening to this who cares, I think is a, a underrated treasure. Mm-hmm. And it's it, it doesn't have a light meter. It doesn't have a range finder. And it is... It's German and it's quirky from the from the late 50s. You know, all German cameras from the 50s are quirky. But 
it's got that color scopar lens, which you can do surgery with. It takes amazing photographs. And because it doesn't have the rangefinder, it's got this brilliant, bright viewfinder. It's just a joy to look through. I love that camera. So for a while, I was buying other Voigtlanders. And then I, I kind of found out that the Vito B seems to be kind of stands alone on that. So I cooled off on that. Mm-hmm. I've got... Um, you would never know it from the web. I don't think you'd know it from the website because I took the pages down. But one of the things I really love, and I got this when I was a kid. I got found this at a, thr- at a uh, yard sale for five bucks. It's a Kodak stereo. And there was a guy at a department store photo counter who was big into stereo. And so he told me all about stereo and whipped me up into a frenzy. <laughs> and I love stereo. I love stereo photography, so I've got a bunch of realist format cameras. I've got the handheld viewers that you look, you you know, you point them at the light. I've got the ones that you, with batteries. I've got the ones you plug in. I've got a tabletop model. I've got the projector where you sit when the lenti- silver lenticular screen and you sit in with uh, glasses and and a ton of photos. And the st- I love the stereo, and I I miss the fact that. The slide film is so incredibly expensive. I was looking at it the other day. I was thinking, there's a uh, railroad museum I would love to go to. And I took some pictures there about a year ago, and they didn't really snap out at me. And I finally realized, well, if I took the 3D camera, I think those things might pop. And, well, I looked at the prices of of slide film, and, oh, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. I think I'm going to. I'm going to buy a slide bar or something and, uh, and do it a different way with uh, the digital camera. Yep. But Unfortunately, I love, yeah, love I mean, stereo photography. It's, and that's one of the, one of the unfortunate um, sort of circumstances is that, you know, a, an area that is uh, so interesting, like stereo photography and really slide, slide film is really what you want to use with it. And here you are faced with this, um, uh, financial burden. And, and that's unfortunate because you can't really follow through. So I, I guess at that point, you really just are sort of focusing on having the collection and, you know, maintaining it, archiving it, you know, that kind of thing, letting it grow in that way. Um, so, so um, James, let's talk a little bit about your approach to, to collecting in terms of acquisition. Um, I know that you visit a lot of thrift stores and things like that. What are the other ways in which you acquire cameras besides perhaps somebody giving you one? Uh, but thrift stores, uh, people giving me things. And um, then it's mostly it's I'm on shop Goodwill almost every day. And I just look through their stuff. They used to, they're not so, not so good anymore. They used to, they used to have more bargains when fewer people I think knew about them. Mm-hmm. Uh Etsy, surprisingly, ha- is a decent source for cameras. Um, yeah, but you have to look. eBay used to be my first my first choice, and then lately, and by the like the last five years, it's my last my last resort. If I'm really looking for some, I'll go on eBay. But and I had this problem the other day when I was looking at uh, I was looking for something, and oh, there's a there's a light meter I'd like. And it's only $5, but they want $95 to ship this thing. And this thing is the size of a remote control on your TV. And not a big, well, not even that. It's about more the size of an old, uh, you know, cell phone, the old uh, clamshell fo- cell phone. 
Uh, no, no, you're not paying. Forget it. And at least with, you can filter out the bidding for the people who want, you know, $5,000 for a, a Kodak stereo camera that's normally retails for $80. Okay, I can filter that out. But when you can't do that with the shipping, not yet. So when they get to the point where I can, I can filter down the outrageous filter out the outrageous shipping prices, then maybe I'll go back to eBay. Mm-hmm. But right now, for the most part, I'm, I'm mostly, it's either brick and mortar or maybe it's Etsy or shop Goodwill mm-hmm. or that kind of thing. I understand what, what when you do acquire a camera, um, uh, is it an issue? I know you do repair work um, on your own stuff. Um, so that kind of alleviates some of the notion of, um, uh, camera ownership, regardless of whether it, it functions or not. And I know a lot of c- collectors are very emphatic about, you know, if a camera is going to be in my collection, I need to be able to shoot with it. It needs to function. Um, what is your take on that? I mean, do you have cameras in your collection that, that don't function and you're simply okay with that? Oh, I have a lot of cameras that don't function. Uh, yeah, it, it used to be back when I used to shoot with film that it, the idea was, okay, I would buy it and hopefully maybe get it fixed and then, or fix it or, and get it running and I would run film through it. And then I kind of got out of, out of shooting film for a variety of reasons, uh, which we can go into if you want, but I mostly got out of that. And then it became, well, it's just going to go on the shelf. All I'm, I'm just buying it for, for my own amusement because I like it and I want to see it and I want to handle it. And I want to document it on my collection. Then it's going to go into, it's going to go on a shelf or it's going to go into a box or something. And I'll look at it later. And so it doesn't need to work. So I've got, I used to have a Roloflex SL35M, which worked, uh, well, most of the time it worked mm-hmm. and sold it and then regretted it. Bought another one that didn't work because it was the only way I could afford it. And okay, well, it doesn't work. Well, doesn't need to work because I, I really didn't I didn't care for it that much as a camera but I thought it was beautiful and it looked good on my shelf and I liked having it I've got an SL35E that's the same way I've got a Canon AT1 which is the little brother of the AE1 it's it's a match needle instead of uh, automatic and I wanted one because for a variety of reasons good and bad but it doesn't need to work because if I'm going to shoot it I'm going to shoot the AE one. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't care if it doesn't work. Um, my father was the repairman in the family. He was the one who was really skilled at it. And he didn't have, he was great at almost anything, but his, his hit ratio with cameras was not very good. And I've got a couple of, I've got a few cameras that are in bags that are just pieces that we tried to fix and just could not fix. So I've mostly given up trying to fix cameras. So if it, it's just a matter of how much am I going to pay? If it's, if it's, a, if it looks nice and it's going to be good on the shelf and it doesn't work, yeah, I'll pay for it, but I'm not going to pay full freight for it. If it's, you know, somebody wants a hundred dollars for this camera that doesn't work. And well, for a hundred dollars, I can get a camera that the, the same thing that does work. Well, I'm going to get the one that does work, but if I can get it for $50. Yeah, I don't care. Okay. It doesn't work. Fine. I understand. Well, I can see how your, your collection will grow um, in that way. Um, 
let's talk a little bit about let's move kind of into an area where we start talking about ephemera and and light meters and things like that um i know that you talked about you know you love getting a box of cameras and there's other parts and accessories and things like that um what other kind of ephemera instruction manuals flyers things like that do you consider a part of your collection and how important is it for you to kind of fill your collection out with those kinds of of items uh i get a lot of books and I get as many magazines within reason as I can. Like I said, I've got almost the, the entire run of modern photography. I've got almost most of uh, its predecessor, which is Minicam. I've, I do have a, the entire run of camera and darkroom. I've got the entire run of darkroom techniques and their various versions. And every so often I'm looking for something and I'll pull one down and look at it. Every so often, I love looking through old modern photographies. I keep pulling them down, look at the pull it because I want an ad for something, or I want to see something in, in an old issue. And then I find myself rereading old articles and columns and they, and learning something interesting. Or, or, well, there's a camera I never heard about, or there's a camera that I never thought about. That's interesting. I wonder if that's how much that is, and I wonder if I can still get that. I love that kind of thing. Uh, Flash units, I couldn't get. I've got a few, and but those are mostly the use. I were the things I just ended up with, and um, I've got I've got a few oddball things. Like you can see the again, this is a Zoom call, so Michael could see this. Everybody else, you have to look hard at your uh, speakers. I've got a, a quilt. My mother makes made quilts periodically, and she said, "Well, you know, I'm going to make you a quilt. What do you want it to look like?" Well, I, normally, I would say I don't care, but this time I said, "Okay, I want a Macbeth color checker quilt." And for people who don't know, Macbeth color checker is a what's now X, right? It's about an eight by ten plaque, and it's got uh, blocks of standard colors, and you can use this as a standard. You can take pictures with it with different films or with different digital cameras, and you can see how they render the same color in different ways, and you can uh, make meaningful comparisons. And I said, so I gave her this picture, said, make me a, make me something that looks like this Macbeth color checker and make it as close as you can. So I now have a Macbeth color checker quilt. Do you use that in your photography? Uh, I should, but no, I've got an actual Macbeth color okay. checker that I use, but I do have, I, and I posted it onto Facebook. I've got a, a picture of my, my quilt that I just bought it and I stretched it out and my gray cat jumped on it. So I took a picture of it and it's my Macbeth color checker belt, checker quilt with grayscale reference. There you go. I love it. So that's a, that's a hoot. But the thing. The one thing, and yeah, we're kind of dancing around it. The one thing that I, that really did grab me, and I didn't think about it at the time, but the, were the light meters. Mm -hmm. And initially it was, I've had the website for a long time. I've, I started my camera, camera collection website back in the 90s. And there were a long time when I had a lot of other things. I was dump, putting things onto it, trying to, trying to beef it up. And okay, well, I'll... I'll put something on about light meters. And I had three or four light meters. I had my, my dad's old Saconic light meter. And I had a, a couple of other things that I'd, I'd picked up over the, over the years, because usually because I bought boxes of junk and they would come with them, which is how you end up with a, 
a lot of these things like uh, like a, a Weston um, a DR or a uh, General Electric DW47, which looks like a kind of like a, a black Remington shaver. And I started writing about these things and uh, that's kind of interesting. And then I'd start doing the research. That's a little bit more interesting. And I'd find other light meters and these things are cheap. Mm-hmm. Ansel Adams used, I used to read books, Ansel Adams, and he'd talk about Weston Masters. Never had a Weston Master. How much is this thing? Well, when they were new, when I was a kid, they were hellishly expensive, but started looking at them and well, you can get them for 10, 15 bucks now. Well, send that, send that sucker over. And so I would get the thing and play with it. And well, I have a Weston Master. Well, get a Weston Master two, get a Weston Master three, get a four, get a five, and started and started rooting through my old magazines and finding information about them. And then I'd get other, and it just ballooned. And then as I started going through the meters, I started finding out a lot of them. They're like cat. They're like they're small cameras. Then they're it's very focused because. A camera does a single thing. It's just exposing film, and yet there's there's a lot more to it. But the, mm-hmm. a light meter is even simpler in that all it's doing is just reading the amount of light that hits the cell. And yet there are all these different ways that you can interpret it, all these different ways you can make it unique. And so you, and these things like cameras have have a lot of character, and they would build these things in ways that other accessories like rangefinders or strobe units do not. And so you would end up something, here's my favorite light meter. This is a Bertram Kronos. And it's supposed to, it's kind of looks like a pocket. It's like a thi- like a very thick pocket watch. And the idea was you'd push the button and the f- thing would flip open. Wow, and then the front has this, the baffles that flip open too. And it's, you close the top and the front, the front barn doors close. It is cute as hell. And it's amazing. And it works. And it's, it's a lot more complicated than what you need. Uh, Here's another German one. It looks like a photo. Like, looks like a lady's compact. That's Mm -hmm. the, and it's, it's an oddball thing, but it's amazing. There are so many of these, so many things that people did with light meters, particularly eh, prior to Sputnik, I'll say, that was just amazing. And after that, they, after that, they tend to get much more utilitarian. But even then, you still get ver- a variety of ideas and concepts and how we're going to do the same thing differently or make it better or just or make it pretty or whatever. And it, it just grabbed me. And I, I got, I, that was the thing where I really went down the rabbit hole and that ended up kind of, it's being its own web, kind of being a parallel website where I went in light meter crazy. Mm-hmm. And again, the beauty of it, a lot of it is that except with a few, uh, a few meters, which are hundreds of dollars and which I'm not going to buy most light meters, you can buy under 30, 35, mm-hmm. 40 bucks. Right. It's a great market because uh, absolutely nobody wants them or really is using them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so interesting to hear you talk about them um, with, with your, with the collection of the light meters and kind of tracking it historically. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, the way that the 
process of metering or measuring light changed in terms of the the references? I mean, I know earlier meters, you know, may have may have given you a different reference point for looking and measuring light, and then as it evolved, it got perhaps easier and easier. But I know earlier ones can be very complicated in some ways. Is that true? Yeah. It's hard to say. It depends. It, it depends on how you look at it. The uh, if we forget all the other, if we all the previous stuff, you started basically in the late '30s. You get the selenium photocell, mm -hmm. which generates its own light, so you don't need a battery. And that's really where handheld light meters start. Really, really explode is in the late '30s, and you get the Western the Western meters and the general electric meters and things like that and for the most part with them it's it's the calculator dial and how do you determine the the needle where the needle is and then trying to figure out where this is going to be how to interpret where the needle is and mm -hmm. as something useful as a useful exposure and there are all kinds of ways to do it and I think because of patents and design, and there were all kinds of different things people did. And Weston used to have these calculator dials that were, on the one hand, they're fantastic, but on the other hand, you got to be 20 years old and have a fighter pilot's eyesight to read them. And as you go older, as you get older, you you start appreciating the ones that had simpler calculator dials that aren't so bad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As you get later after like World War II, they start getting simpler. The calculator dials generally get a little bit bigger and a little bit, you know, you're not doing things on third stops anymore. You're doing things on first stops. Somewhere in about, I think it was one of the General Electric side, maybe the PR1 or PR2 had the match needle. Maybe it was the PR3 had match needle. And that seems to be the one that all of a sudden, after that, everybody did match needle. And match needle was where you had a needle that was connected to the calculator dial. And so the meter needle, the live needle would swing and deflect. You would crank the, uh, you'd twist the calculator dial around until its needle kind of matched it, kind of overlaid it. And then you could read the, uh, you could read the pairs, the, the exposure information that way. And everybody went to that. Mm -hmm. and then... After selenium in the early 60s, everybody dumped that and they all went to CDS, which is where you used a little mercury battery. And it ended up being much more sensitive to low light. And it had other problems, but nobody seemed to care. Mm -hmm. But everybody, everybody mostly dumped selenium and they all went to CDS. And that happened. That went until about the mid '70s, when everybody dumped that and went to uh, silicone or silicon blue, which is kind of what happened. Went on after that, which also requires batteries. The advantage with those is that they take modern batteries, which you can still buy. You can't buy the old mercury batteries. If you get an old Luna Pro or something, you have to figure out well, what am I going to do about the battery you there are a variety of things fixes you can do to deal with the batteries but if you buy a modern a modern meter like my favorite light meter i tell people is 
a, a Luna Pro SBC because it takes a nine volt battery. Don't have to fight with it. it it'll all it, it, in my lifetime, I think I'll always be able to get a nine volt battery. Don't have to deal with the problems. And yeah, it's a great big meter, but it does everything. I don't mm-hmm. other or I get or I'm interested in selenium cell batteries where selenium cells where I don't have to deal with the battery at all. You just aim it. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't well, mm-hmm. then I use the camera, use the meter on the camera anyway. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I just have a smattering of a few meters in my, in my own collection. And, um, you know, I happen to have a couple of the older Westons and I must say that they, the, the dial configuration is yes, very difficult to read and, but beautifully engraved. I mean, kind of stunning in a way when you look at how intricate the, the dials are and the, the, the numerals and things like that, it's, it's quite a piece of work just to, just to look at it, honestly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, they used to. They put a lot more work into a lot of these things than than they do now, mm-hmm. or that they did. They did later on. There was a lot more, both into the uh, the functional parts or and the aesthetics. You can see both. It's so, amazing. So with the cataloging of the meters um, on the website, uh, you've been able to track obviously your collection. Um, is there anything? Um, let's say meter wise that I'd really love to have and you simply either can't find or just not willing to, to spend the money on at this point. Um, uh, not, not really. I've gotten pretty much everything I've wanted. I could, I think they're the first, a fit what most people consider to be the first modern meter is a Ramstein electrophote and I, I forget what what the model what the model number is anymore and it is very difficult to find and very expensive when you do and I've got a couple of Ramstein electro very early Ramstein electrophotes and I'm fine with it so I don't have to have the first one anymore uh, the one that I was really after for a long time was I don't know I don't know how you pronounce it it's the company is ph a-O-S-T-R-O-N, and I call it Facetron. And they made what they call photometers. And it's a little, generally they're little small boxes. And a, a photometer works on the idea that you have a little light inside with a, and you got the, your calculator dials connected to a rheostat, which is you have a little light with a battery and you, and the rheostat determines how bright the light is. So you look through the viewfinder at your image and you can kind of, you can see the light in it and you can see the, the ambient light and you, you change that you adjust it until the light just balances until it just either did, just barely appears or disappears as you see fit. And then you read the exposure and if, supposedly that'll give you your proper exposure it's the basis of a lot of a lot of different meters over the years facetron made a model a which is easy to find a model b easy to find model c which is somewhat easy to find and then one day i was going through magazines and i saw an ad and this is on the eve of us going into world war ii so it's about 41 for model d and i only saw i think one ad and, I, and they had the uh, what's new column. So where they they basically just put in the uh, 
they just quote the uh, press release. Oh, there's a Model D coming out and it does this and that. It's going to be fantastic. Well, we got into World War II and Phaestron went into war work and that was the end of it. And they came out of World War II and, you know, no more Phaestron meters. So I didn't think the thing even existed. And then one day, I think I had set, I might have set up an, an alarm in eBay, one of those safe searches that tells me that something came up and I got an alert for it. And holy cow, there's a Model D. So I, and I, nobody knows what this thing is except me. So I pounced on it and got it for not very, not too much money and, and probably against maybe one other person who may or may not have known what it was. And so I'm now I've got a Model D and I was just thrilled to death. And to me, that was, yeah, that kind of thing was the Holy Grail. And I've got, I've got a weird Soviet, I've got an oddball Soviet, um, light meter, which I think is used, I think it's more for uh, cinematography. And it's the Soviet version of a Norwood super director, which again, if, uh, people who collect light meters will know what I'm talking about. And nobody else is going to know or care, but it's, this thing is a hoot, but and yet I think, I think it's incredibly rare. And it's one of those things I stumbled upon, but I, I got it and I'm just thrilled to death that, to have it. To me, it's probably, it's one of my most rare and interesting meters. I love the thing, but it's, but it's wacky. Soviet meters like Soviet cameras are wacky and fun, especially yeah. for, I think people, I think I'm near your age. When we were kids, you know, the Soviet, it was still the Soviet Union and it was still a close society and they were still very exotic and, mm -hmm. and unknown. And so that gave it, a little bit more of a cachet and something. Wow, this is this is different and strange. And I still have the, there's still that mystique, at least for me, when I look at my my Russian cameras or my my East German stuff. Mm -hmm. have both light meters and cameras. They're they're interesting. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I have a, a fairly decent collection of exactas, and um, you know, I think they're they're the most interesting. Um, potentially of the cameras in my collection, um, the way they're designed and, and everything that's kind of associated with them. When you, when you look at your collection now and you're talking about the cameras and the meters and, and the ephemera, um, how do you display them, James? Do you, do you have them out? Do you, do you have to have them in storage? Is there any, any climate issues that come into play that, that affect you know, whether or not you're going to put a camera out on the shelf or not or anything of that nature? I'm in Southern California and it's warm and dry. So I don't have humidity problems. Uh, the dryness kind of works against me with a couple of the cameras with, with the, the old leather body. Uh, some of the, uh, some of the uh, graph flexes are hating life, but the uh, most cam most of the cameras really don't seem to mind. Uh, I go through, I go through periods, mostly they're in boxes or I've been moving them into camera bags because you can find camera bags at thrift shops fairly, you can find very nice camera bags cheap at the thrift shops. And so I've got a couple of quality donkey uh, professional photojournalist gags where I carry the, I keep all the, the really good stuff, the stuff that I still use. And then I've got Canon bags where I try and put all the Canons in and I've got a couple of Nikon bags and I put the Nikons in those. And I've been trying and, other things like the codecs are in a box. I do have a, 
I've got a, when I moved into my, my current house, I was given a couple of China closets. There are China cabinets. And so for a little while, I had one China cabinet was just all, all cameras. And then one of my aunts gave me actual China. Uh, well, I should put some of the China in there. And then I was given, I, I got some crystal and I got some things that would look at, well, some of that should be in there. So one of the, one of the cabinets now has, I still have a shelf with all, with all cameras. And so the, the fancier, nicer cameras, except for the Roliflex, which is salted away in a safe where nothing can happen. Hopefully nothing will happen to it, but almost all the other cameras are, you know, the good, the really pretty ones are, are out on display. I've got another China cabinet, which is kind of a curio cabinet where I've got, I've got an antique typewriter and I've got a, a bunch of, uh, I've got cameras and I've got Vaseline glass and I've got a, a chess set and a couple of other oddball things. Mm -hmm. But most of the cameras are, yeah, most of the cameras are salted away. And it's one of those things where I pull things out if I need to look at them or on the, if I've got a friend who wants to see something, I'll pull something out. But uh, I rotate things in and out of the China cabinets as I, as I see fit. When you, when you think about your collection, um, you know, we, we, you just chatted about finding that, that light meter um, and not thinking that it even existed. I mean, that was perhaps quite a moment in acquisition. Um, are there any cameras that represent a unique or specific moment when you acquired them that you can sort of reflect on as being particularly special? Yeah, there was um, the Kodak stereo that I, I talked about initially, the one that got me into cameras. That was interesting because I was uh, my dad worked for a department store and then we were, we'd go to this department store because we got the employee discount and I got to be friendly with the guy who ran the camera, camera counter back when there was such a thing. And he was in this stereo photography. So he was kind of bending my ear and telling me about this and showing me slides and, and okay, well, I'll keep an eye out for that kind of with those cameras. And then I'm one day I'm out at a, at a yard sale and I'm going through a box of junk and, and I pull out this Kodak camera and uh, initially on a first glance, it looks like another Brownie, maybe an oddball TLR or something. Uh, I don't have this. How much is it? Five bucks. Okay. I'll give you five bucks. And I realized actually by reading the front of it, where it's a stereo on it, well, that's a Kodak stereo. Took it into the guy and the guy's eyes popped. And this is an $80 camera. Where do you, Okay get some Kodachrome, put it in on a, and get it mounted and I'll lend you a thing and we'll look at them. So I got into stereo photography. I got big into, still interested in stereo photography from that camera. I've got, I'm not sure if this answers your question. I've got, I do have connections to like the Voltlander, the Voltlander Vito B because I remember taking pictures with it and I was developing for acuity. I like sharp, I like sharpness. And I was getting amazing negatives out of this particular camera. I love that camera. I've got a, uh, uh, the Roloflex 30, SL35M, the one that worked, I bought because it was jammed at a shop. And I dragged my dad down to the shop. We looked at it. Eh, it was not too much money. 
bought the thing. I'm driving home and he's fiddling with it and he managed to unjam it. And he swears he has no idea how it got unjammed. But, you know, I used it after that. That was a it was a disappointment in that I never really got images out of it that I, I particularly liked. But that was fun. I've got a uh, Practica LTL3, mm-hmm. which is a East, I think it's an East German camera. Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting camera. And right off the, I bought it because it's Practica, because I didn't have any Practicas, didn't have any East German cameras. And ran, and but I've got a picture out of it of my, uh, my, uh, English car, which is a money pit, but it was, I got a picture of it in a parking lot at a city park at night with some lights. And it's got a film noir look that I I just love. I love that photo. And it came from my practica. So I have this weird attachment to this practica LTL3 because I took that photo with it. It's mm-hmm. on the photo, fo- you know, there's the camera collection and there's the cameras and then there's the photos. They kind of go, they always seem to bounce back and forth mm-hmm. between each other. Yep. That, yes, that's exactly right. And it's so interesting that you're able to pinpoint those specific um, cameras, images, and that whole experience and sort of bring those together so that, yeah, you think about that photograph of your car, you think about the way that it looked, and now you're thinking about the camera that made that photograph. And suddenly there's this very interesting connection um, when you when you think about the breadth of your collection uh, and you and you look at it in terms of aesthetics and ergonomics and functionality and things like that, um, are there any cameras that um, just in terms of ergonomics operation that seem to really challenge the photographic process, at least when they're in your hands looking out there trying to make a photograph? Uh, the Vito B is a challenge. That's <laughs> that's. It's because it's pre-60s. It's before everything kind of got standardized. And it's one of those things where you have to spend some time working, handling it. I think it's got a, it, it's part of the, uh, there's a push to try and make things easier with uh, the light value system and the EV system where you would, uh, you know, you'd use the meter and it would, the meter would say EV 13 and you could, go onto the camera and set it to EV-13 and all of a sudden you don't have to fuss with uh, figuring out uh, F-stops and shutter combinations and things like that. You just set the EV-13, that'll work. And it was a good idea that didn't quite work, but this thing's got the lock. So it's easy to lock. You, you set up the exposure and the idea being that once it's set, you crank the, crank the thing around and it's always going to give you the same proper exposure regardless of what f-stop or what um, Mm -hmm. shutter speed because they're they're connected and it's one of those things that's more annoying and in 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 practice than not but it's also one of those things where you just have to embrace the uh the wackiness of some of these things Mm -hmm. uh one of the things i found more annoying was uh, my speed graphic i've got a a four by five uh, anniversary edition graphics graphlex speed graphic and a speed graphic graphic is a crown graphic that has a focal plane shutter on the back and because these things they've got the focal plane shutter on the back but they're set up for a lens board and almost all the sh- lens board i've ever seen on these things 
have a lens mounted in a shutter, mechanical uh, leaf shutter. Well, now you've got sh two shutters to deal with. So you all, you're always trying to remember that you have to open one and leave one closed and just use the one. And it's very, very easy to forget and have them both open at the same time or have them both both closed. And you can't just say, well, I'll just always leave the, you know, the back one closed. Well, if you want to compose on the, uh, if you want to compose on the, uh, using the ground glass, you have to have them both open. Right. If you, so. I can see how that would be really yeah, very it difficult. Takes, yeah. If I did it all the time, I would get used to it. But if you just do it once in a while, mm -hmm. then it's, it's very easy to ruin a lot of film very and not know it or know it. And it's, well, it's too late to do anything about right. it. Yeah. I've heard stories. I've heard stories um, in the same vein. If we sort of go to the polar opposite of that spectrum, are there any cameras that um, simply oversimplify the process to the degree where uh, it kind of takes the fun out of shooting? Um, and, and I know the digital cameras can be like that, but um, how about just in terms of the, the, uh, the vintage stuff, is there anything that just seems to be just a, too simple or simpler to use? Oh yeah. Well, they, they made tons of cameras. The, the, the simpler way is just simply focus free. Mm -hmm. You have a, a, a poor lens that, well, you don't need it like my, like my brownies where there's no focus on it. Everything's in focus after about 10 feet It's not if it's in particularly good focus, but it's, it's good enough. And you've got maybe one or two shutter speeds and maybe you've got a, one or two apertures and that's it. And I've got a, there are a number of cameras that are like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, is on the one hand, I should be fair and not, and not be snooty about it because a lot of these cameras, you take them out in daylight and you don't, you know, the three shutter speeds, they, you know, 25, 50 and a hundred and, you know, F five, six, eight and 16 or, are perfectly good for whatever you're going to need, but it still seems awfully limiting. And if you're used to having more, more precision and more choices, then it's kind of irritating. Mm -hmm. Yep. Oh yeah. I, I can, I can see that. Absolutely. Um, let's, let's focus a little bit more on aesthetics. Um, again, looking at the breadth of your collection, um, is there anything that stands out as, um, more attractive than any of the other cameras in your collection, something that really kind of pinpoints your, your, your vision and says, you know, this is really something special. Yeah. The Roloflex, uh, the <laughs> Roloflex TLR. And I don't know, I think I, I've got a three, five version, but you know, the lenses on that thing don't matter. It doesn't really matter. It is, you know, it's, it's big, it's heavy, but it's, it's just beautifully made. Uh, it's, it looks like it was designed. It's hard to describe if you can't see it, but especially if you don't, you can't see it in person. Before I saw it in person, yeah, I, oh yeah, that's a pretty camera. But it wasn't until I got the thing, wow, it, it just it was amazing. And I remember going to a, uh, I was in an antique shop with a friend, and I was we were I was looking at a TLR, and I'm trying to I was, yeah, that's kind of a cheap junk TLR. She says, well, I can't really tell the difference. So I'm trying to point out, well, you see this and that, and mm -hmm. this isn't, uh, you know, this is not a hallmark of quality. If you look at this, 
look at this and you can see see how this turns and see how the fit and finish is much better on this than this. And this has rivets and this has screws and this and that. I remember we saw this, I ended up about almost at the same time, my dad and I, we ended up, we were at a flea market and I got an ArgoFlex TLR, which is, you know, a cheapy TLR. And I got a RicoFlex 7S and the RicoFlex had been dunked. It had fallen into a lake or, and got fished cool. out and it was, and it, it was just a, it was a disaster. It was a mess. So I paid almost nothing for it. And we took it home and, and this is the way most things were with my dad and I, which is, well, it can't get worse. So took it all apart, stripped it down, repainted it, cleaned up all the rust, cleaned it all up, got the thing back together. Luckily the, uh, we didn't have to really get into the shutter that still worked. And it's, it's a beautiful camera. And one of the things we found out with the RicoFlex, initially we thought, oh, it's a cheap Japanese piece of junk. Well, no, it, the thing was built to be worked on. It had little screws. It was beautifully made. It was beautifully designed. And the ArgoFlex was kind of cheap and junk and chunky and meant to be knocked together. And <laughs> it could be, it was more of a, it was, it was a good one to give to a kid because it would take a pounding. Uh, but it was not a great camera. The Ricoflex is a far better camera. And but it's one of those things if you if you don't really know what you're looking at initially, you look at them, they look like they're kind of the same camera. They're both TLRs, but if you start getting into it, yeah, they're amazing. But of course, then you put the Roloflex TLR next to it, and then and the other both of them look like a Mattel toys compared to that. Yeah, it's the other the the Roloflexes are are really something um, along those lines. Let's look at uh, maybe the ugly duckling in your collection. Uh, something that stands out that just is uh, aesthetic. Yeah, I was waiting for this. This is another <laughs> one where because we've got the webcam, I'm oh, my God. this miserable piece of garbage. I hate. I love hating this thing. This is a Halil TriVision. It's a stereo camera, and it's got uh, it's got the two two lenses, but it's also got it's got uh, it's got dual shutters and it takes a twenty eight film. It seems like every bad camera in the world takes a twenty eight film. Oh my goodness! Uh, I don't think I don't think the lighting yeah. in here is poor. I don't know if you can tell this. You can look at the uh, the line here where the film is going across is very bowed. Yeah, it's the workmanship on this thing is. I uh, maybe it's age and maybe it's. Maybe it's age. I, I tend to think it's more workmanship. It's just, it's an awful camera. And yet I've got a big, beautiful color advertisement from a from a, a, a modern photography magazine for this piece of garbage, but nobody bought it. I was given to given it by uh, one of my, one of my aunts who, you know, I don't know how they got it, but <laughs> I have it. It's an awful <laughs> camera, but I, but on the other hand, I it's it's a great focus for uh, for for venom and mm -hmm. just looking at it and just ugh, this is awful. The other version and I didn't bring it in, so I can't hold it up to the camera. But it's the one that I'm going to. I keep thinking I'm going to uh, someday I'm going to take the 
the spare engine for for my uh, British car uh, that's swinging on a uh, an engine hoist. I'm going to put this camera underneath it and drop the engine on it. Is a uh, it's a counterfeit cannon, and I've got this thing on my website. And this thing makes me angry every time I look at it. And mostly it's because it's it's a counterfeit. It's got the Canon logo, but it's not a Canon camera. And this thing is metal is built to look like a 35 millimeter SLR, and it's got the big potato masher lens on it, or potato masher flash on it. And at first glance, it looks like a great camera. And then you start looking at it, and you realize it's got a terrible lens on it. It's actually a TLR. And it's got the uh, a waist level finder on the side. It's not. It's not a true SLR. It's made out of plastic. I think they probably put lead in it to weight it. You give it some weight and some heft, so that it seems like a real camera and not a toy. And I've seen it for sale under all kinds of different names. I saw one as a Magna Box. I've seen it as an Olympia. I've seen it as all kinds of things. But mm-hmm. they never seem to have. They never had the. Uh, the cojones to call it a Nikon or anything else. But for some reason they did it with Canon and I keep seeing it for sale, especially on Goodwill. Goodwill seems to have one every week, you know, Canon something or else. And it just, and it makes me angry because I keep thinking people are, who don't know any better are buying this Canon and they're getting this piece of junk and it's, you know, it's no, it's not the same. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if it's okay, if it's an Olympia or if it's some other garbage piece of thing okay fine then well if you're into that kind of camera okay it's fine but it's the counterfeit part makes me angry right someday i'm going to creatively destroy this camera that i've got i I understand i understand um well well, let's we're going to be wrapping this up but i I do like to kind of ask this last question and you know this different collectors approach this this answer differently um depending upon how they approach their collections and, and what their cameras mean to them. Um, you know, we, we look at the price of film and how costly it's getting. And in some cases it's harder to get in with the hypothetical situation that film no longer existed. Uh, would you still collect cameras? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I love the, for the same reason I collect old radios that mm-hmm. only pick up uh, AM radio, even though AM radio is, has nothing on it that I want to listen to and um, or wire recorders and some of these other oddball things that I get. But yeah, the cameras are, are beautiful and they are functional and they're interesting. And it's interesting picking them on, on their own and seeing what they do and how people picked a, people solved the same problem in different ways. Mm-hmm. And that fascinates me. It's, it's what, like I said, it's much more easy to see this problem in light meters where you've, how do you take something that's very simple and, and creatively solve this in a different way that hasn't, hasn't been done before and sets you apart from your, from your competitors and cameras are a little, it's a little fuzzier because the cameras are more, uh, you know, are more elaborate, but they, it's the same problem. And it's fascinating whether it's old cameras or new cameras and, it's how do you do the same thing in a different way or in a, a novel way or in a way that's particularly good or particularly interesting way. And yeah, I love that kind of thing. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I understand what you're talking about. It's so interesting to look at those different manufacturing processes. And then you look at the aesthetics and the camera as a representation of some element of history. I mean, I think there's there's a lot that's wrapped up in that. And I think um, it speaks volumes about um, how invested you are in your collection and the kind of things that you're interested in, the way you've tied it to meters and other ephemera. And uh, it sounds like the whole thing sort of becomes very holistic. Plus, you have, you know, allowed for, um, you know, the viewing of your collection through the website. So there's access there too. And I think that that's really interesting. So um, it's been really, really um, great talking to you about the collection, um, James, the, the, the breadth of it, your approach, your specific interests, the way that you've tied to, um, you know, meters and things like that. And, um, you know, I really appreciate the fact that you've spent some time uh, talking about it. I know that, um, you know, your, your passion comes through. And um, I think that um, it's been um, really beneficial to hear this kind of approach which is sort of very much uh, about the camera as a as an entity, as an element in the process, not necessarily having to be something that you shoot with, but something that just sort of functions as a part of your collection, something yes. that, that looks interesting and and uh, is uh, fun to look at and pick up and explore and tap into the history of. So just great. Thank you so much for your time. Um, and I will um, make sure that people have a chance to um, uh, visit your website with the appropriate information um, on our show page. Um, we'll be posting pictures of some of the cameras that you've talked about so people can reference them and get an understanding a little bit more about what you're talking about. And I appreciate your time that you've spent with me today, James. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, um, this has been a, um, a real treat. And when we return, uh, there'll be more from The Ephemeral Machine. And we are back. And you are listening to The Ephemeral Machine, a podcast about collecting cameras. I want to thank my guest, James Ollinger, for spending some time this episode chatting about camera collecting and his extensive collection of light meters. It was so interesting to hear about the evolution of his collection as he shared his insight and perspective. Thank you for joining me on my own journey into the world of camera collecting, and I will see you again for the next episode of The Ephemeral Machine.